This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Amanda Joyce Hall. Today, Dr. Keto Swan returns to our show to discuss his new book, Pacifica Black, Oceania, Anti-Colonialism, and the African World. The title is currently out with New York University Press as a part of its Black Power series. Dr. Swan is full professor of African-American and African diaspora studies at the University of Indiana, Bloomington. He is a historian and Black Studies scholar who focuses on Black internationalism, anti-colonialism, and Black power. His first book, Black Power in Bermuda, published in 2010, is about the ongoing fight for decolonization on the Caribbean island of Bermuda and its connections to the radical politics of the Black world. His second book, Paulu's Diaspora, published in 2020, tells a narrative of global Black power through the life of Bermudian Black power and environmental justice activist Paulu Kamarakafego. Today in our conversation about his third book, Pacifica Black, Dr. Swan takes us to Radical Oceania, where we learn about the fight against colonialism and imperialism in the Black Pacific. Keto Swan, welcome back to the show. Amanda Joyce Hall, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're so glad that you're back with a new book for us to learn from two years later. Last time you were a guest on the show, you told our audience about how you came to become a historian um, and a scholar of Black studies. Today, I'm going to ask you to go deeper into that and tell us about your top five intellectual encounters. And this could be anything. This could be songs, art, books, film, spaces, conversations. Um, Your top five intellectual encounters that have influenced you in your journey through Black studies. Wow. Uh, you know, Amanda, this, this, you took me right back to our first interview. Uh, your questions were really generative and I don't know where to begin. Um, uh, I guess I would have to say Bermuda was an encounter. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Bermuda, born and raised, um, small community, interesting ecologies. Um, in terms of black studies, it's, it's, I learned from my uncle at a very young age what red, black, and green African liberation flag meant um, when I was maybe exactly in, in Ethiopia and 
Rasta was always there um, in my grandmother's neighborhood when I was really, really young. Spent a lot of time in my grandmother's home, um, learning about natural foods and medicines and herbs. And my first encounters with Black Studies definitely is Bermuda, um, which is a British colony. And I just found myself on a journey to learn more about Bermuda's Black radical tradition before I even know that was a, a term. Um, that was my first encounter. And songscapes of Bermuda from our Gumbay traditions that go back to Africa, masquerade, dancing, and drumming, um, our fights against slavery, people like Mary Prince who escaped from slavery, Sally Bassett who poisoned her masters. These are stories that I heard in the oral tradition because Bermuda's colonial education structure didn't teach us about black power. Um, so I went to FAMU, which I would say, you know, Florida A&M University, shout out FAM. Um, Tallahassee, Florida, I would say that was probably my second encounter, I guess. Uh, you know, with, with Black Studies, it's a space where I, I studied computer science, but I spent a lot of time uh, in like Black psychology department, um, reading books like Ikwe Amar, The Healers, and 2000 Seasons. I was just amazed in the space of African culture, spirituality, in a really agricultural rural society. It's where I met so many different kinds of black folks. I mean, I came to, I came to the U.S. knowing there was a black world outside of the United States, but my world was very much, you know, Caribbean, Bermuda, Jamaica, Barbados, St. Vincent, St. Kitts. I get to FAMU, now it's Haiti, it's Miami, it's California. It's it's just this amazing world of black culture um, that I, I saw myself as a part of. Um, Wow, encounters. Paulo Cameron Cafego, who my second book was about. I met him after I finished at FAMU. Um, he encouraged me to think a lot about the connections between environmental justice, uh, technology, sustainable development, and Black studies. And he was one of the first persons who really had intimate knowledge of a Black world in Oceania. And that was really important. Um, Howard University, where I went to grad school, was an encounter. Not just Howard, but DC and Sankofa Bookstore on Georgia Avenue. I remember buying Sam Greenlist and Spooker sat by the door on VHS from Sankofa, meeting Haley Harley Garima, um, trying to buy all the black books I could find, places like Everyone's Place in Baltimore, uh, meeting you know communities of Ethiopians, Eritreans, uh, Nigerians, uh, black foods. It was a lot um yeah it was, it was great to study at howard and i taught at howard as you know for some time and it was a amazing space where black studies was not just something in the classroom but it was a lived a lived experience and also with tensions you know i got tested a lot you know by folks on the street who knew had no had our own knowledges i think it was a beautiful a beautiful thing i have so many proverbial statements that i learned um, cash in the bank, money in the ground. Um, <laughs> but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, Gerald Moore was an encounter. He was an encounter. He still is an encounter. Um, you know, like many of us, I'm sure you can attest to this as well. Uh, Horn really showed me the scope of studying the black world internationally. Um, 
I was African diaspora studies major, but Horn really showed me the, the methods and, and the process to study, to study the black world outside of the Atlantic. Well, great. Thank you so much for sharing those with us. Um, and walking us up to how you got to this point in your intellectual journey. So let's look at the most recent thing you have given us. How did you come to write Pacifica Black? And how did you land on this title? Uh, that's a great question. I had, I was in Oceania conducting research on the second book, which as mentioned was about Paulo Cameron Cafago, and he was actively involved in black power struggles in Australia, Wanawatu and decolonization and Pan-Africanism in Oceania. Uh, and spent a lot of time in Papua New Guinea working in the area of sustainable development and also Fiji. So I was basically traveling to Oceania to, you know, meet with his extended family members and learn about his experiences there to write this book about his global activities and global communities that he worked with. And I found myself in another encounter with Oceania. Um, I, I found myself at a community, I guess, on the west side of Fiji called First Landing. And community members were adamant that they had arrived there from Tanganyika or Tanzania. Uh, they called it First Landing because they were like, this is where we first landed from Africa. And I knew at that moment I wanted to think of that much further um you know for someone you know born and raised in the caribbean i always saw myself as an island person quote unquote but being in oceania really was helpful in understanding what 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 island communities are you know in terms of the african world we've been in the caribbean maybe what 500 years you know i'm thinking of peter tasha's 400 years for example um you get to Oceania and, and folks have been in this region for 4,000 years, you know, and, and beyond, right? So that's a different engagement. It's a space where the, the deities still live in the water. They still have names as opposed to in the Caribbean context. But they, and rightly so, we're thinking back to Africa. You know, we're bringing Oshun, we're bringing Shango, you know, we're bringing Obatala. Um, in Oceania, deities like Tagara, the Havalera, shapeshifters, they still live in the regions. Those are some interesting encounters. So the last time you were here, I asked you about your research process and you took us on this amazing journey um, through, well, mm. a, lot, a lot of it was through Oceania. Um, but this time I want to ask you about your writing process. How did you approach the writing of this book and its writing that kind of required that you learn and blend numerous historiographies, that you manage multiple national histories, that you juggle the simultaneity of events and movements, that you map travels and border crossings against um, the background of myriad happenings that are happening in the Black world. So tell us about that task and the types mm. of writing vibes that got you through. Wow. Um, well, as you know, you know, in your own work on the global dynamics of the Black consciousness movement in South Africa and anti-apartheid, um, it's challenging to do, you know, this kind of global work. And I think that's 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 the Horn dynamic. Horn 
and other writers as well have showed us, you know, how it can be done, but it doesn't mean it's easy. Um, the research is difficult. I think what I've come to understand more about myself is that <laughs> I'm playing music, you know, I'm DJing, I'm, 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 I'm building a sound system. Like literally when I write, I'm, 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 I'm juggling music. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm building up my sound system. And so, uh, like for me, my primary sources, if I'm thinking of, you know, a reggae sound system and a clash, those are my dub plates. You know, my, my, my biggest sources, my most precious sources, I don't play that tune all the time. Uh, but when I want to juggle tune and build up a vibe off the same rhythms, that's when I'm engaging, you know, secondary literature that puts me in community with other writers. So I, I kind of looked at my work as... I've come to see my work as being part of a, a broader studio um, that connects Black Power in Bermuda to Paul Lewis Diaspora to Pacifica Black. Um, when I write, titles matter a lot to me. And so you asked me about, you know, Pacifica Black. Uh, Pacifica Black is based upon Wanawatu's Creolized national language, Bislama. Uh, so Pacific. Pacifica is it's a version of same Pacific um, in, in Wanawatu. And so that's where that came from. But when I write, titles are like my scaffolding. Like I have titles that the world won't see, um, you know, but it gets through the process. Um, I also, I think we talked about this as well. For Paulo's diaspora, I, I found myself doing what I call the Anansi rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, where I tell different layered stories when I write. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm writing, I'm always trying to map where I was at and what I was doing when I was writing or when I was researching, but the readers won't always know. Um, but it's like this hidden script behind the scene that I find interesting. And for me, you know, writing, I feel like Black Palm Bermuda felt like work. Not so much work, but I was on a mission. And I, I still think I'm on a mission with my work, but I actually, it's actually really enriching for me now. And I didn't always feel like that when I first started to write. Wow, I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah. it's a fragment of it. I want to do risky work. You know, I want to do risky work. Like that's what I really want to do. If you think of risky like Popcorn and DeVito, I want to do risky work. Um, I want to do unruly work. I want to challenge myself. First and foremost, I want to challenge readers, and I I I like to write on the on the on the boundaries of insurgency and stay in those spaces. That's what drives me as a writer. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. So, are there any titles that you can share with us that didn't make it into Pacifica Black, but was a part <laughs> of was a part of was a wow. part of your um your structure? Was a part of your you know scaffolding. Can I cuss in this format? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're trying to cuss me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, the audio went off for a second. I didn't catch what you said. I just said, you're the one who was just talking about being unruly, so. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe offline. Maybe offline. You know, this might be a family show, but um, let's just say. <laughs> Okay, here's an acceptable version. Every law is illegal was a title mm-hmm. on the page for a lot. Every law is illegal. 
it didn't make it didn't make the book, but I think it might make another one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes you know when you sit down and write, your mindset is somewhere else, and you want to dust that out. So, what's on the top of the page? I want to, you know, clear the space. Um, one thing I've gotten better at, I'm still working on it, is. You know, when you write when you write about the dead, it's different than when you write about the living. It's different. Mm, say more about that. What does that mean? Um, I mean, these are the things that historians are told but not to talk about. But you know, in in, in a black studies world, this is it. Like mm-hmm. sometimes, I feel like sometimes the folks I write about, they 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 make the presence felt, mm-hmm. and they send you on missions. They show you archives. Um, they take up space. Uh, Paolo didn't want me to stop writing. And I had, I had to negotiate with him. Like, I, I kept finding more archives. Mm-hmm. And it was my, my, my great friend and phenomenal scholar of Black Studies, Eric Edwards, who encouraged me to wrap it up and leave something for someone else to write. So, yeah, when you write for the dead or those that passed away, you know, you did. You live with. You live with. You know those ancestors, those deities, those voices, and the work can be really prolific and, and it's invigorating, but also really, really challenging when you have other things you need to also do as well. So, asking permission to write from those mm. in the, from those those spaces is something I've gotten better at. And usually, if I get stuck in a rut. I say, oh, I haven't really asked for permission. Um, and usually asking for permission opens up opens up the way. Well, with this book, you've certainly left us with many breadcrumbs to kind of follow. So there's a lot of work um, left to be done um, based on kind of the path that you've you've laid out for future scholars in this book. So before we get into the chapters, though. I'm going to need you to do some stage setting for our audience who might be unfamiliar with the space of the Black Pacific. So I want to ask you to orient us to the geography of the Pacific. How is the Pacific different from Oceania? How is Melanesia different from Micronesia, from Polynesia, and so on? And then what's in a name? Um, What's at stake for how we refer to this part of the Black world and its constituent parts? Wow, um, that's a really, a really opulent question, um, Amanda. Um, wow. So, the Black Pacific for me, the the, the Black Pacific, it refers to um, several things. Um, it's not simply a response to the notion of a Black Atlantic, which you know, it was centered on the black experiences of the Atlantic world. Uh, for me, a, a black Pacific definitely asks questions about black experiences in, you know, the Pacific Ocean world. But that's really broad. I mean, you know, we can talk about Afro-Asian encounters with folks like, you know, Du Bois, um, you know, Robert F. Williams, China, Japan, Vietnam, you have so much work on, the, on those connections. 
Uh, we also have the experiences of African people enslaved across the Atlantic who now occupy, for example, the Pacific coast of the Americas, like Colombia. Big up mm-hmm. to Ecuador's, uh, you know, World <laughs> Cup team. You know, I'm not big up Ecuador because my name is the capital, but it's a very much, you know, the, the team, the teams showed, you know. They have a great team. Africa. Yes, they do, right? They have a great um, team. And while there's a ton of invisibility around blackness in Ecuador, um, that that that, that Afro that Afro Ecuadorian team speaks of a different reality. It speaks of maroon communities on the on the west coast, the Pacific coast of uh, the Americas, uh, Colombia. There's a big you know tremendous discourse in, the, in, the, in those spaces, Mexico. So that's a black Pacific. Um, you mm-hmm. have a Black Pacific of, you know, the Black Panther Party, for, for example, is, is founded on, on the Pacific coast mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. the United States. So there are these real Absolutely. Pacific experiences and orientation that's looking, I guess, maybe more West. Um, you also have the experiences of, you know, indigenous persons who left Africa, you know, several thousand years ago and literally walked across Asia, walked south to Papua New Guinea, walked into Australia before there was land. Um, I mean, before there was water. Before it's water, uh, yeah. Indeed. Uh, my Black Pacific is is really looking at the experiences of uh, indigenous communities who were racialized and colonized as being Black, largely Melanesia, and how those communities uh, redefined themselves as being Black and sought out Black liberation struggles and the own movements for liberation, such as through Black power, Pan-Africanism, and other forms of Black internationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, and I guess these are the breadcrumbs, right? I mean, the breadfruit crumbs. These are breadfruit crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, this matters, right? Because, you know, as someone, once again, right, from, from the Caribbean, I always assumed that breadfruit was a food that's indigenous, Um to the Caribbean, but it's actually brought from Oceania, which an older version of Oceania was referred to as the South Pacific, but that had its own issues in terms of, you know, problematic racialized formulations. Um, But it also speaks to these other connections between the Caribbean and Oceania, but Melanesia. So pretty much uh, European explorers did what they did across the world. They got to Oceania, they imagined, they met different races, uh, the communities that were phenotypically the lightest, uh, whose women they thought were more attractive, and who had resources, they tend to define as noble savages. And it's a long road to this, but they call those individuals or communities Polynesian. Uh, the dark individuals receive labels as being cannibals, savages, unattractive, women unavailable, land barren, dangerous. That's Melanesia. It's called Melanesia because of the melanin content of communities. This is how you get Papua New Guinea or New Guinea as a a Europeanized version of Old Guinea of West Africa or Africa, Africa proper. Uh, So, but today you could say Melanesia etymologically means islands of black people. It refers to some 14 million persons some 2,000 islands, some 1,300 languages, and some 400,000 square miles of land across uh, states like Wanawatu, Papua New Guinea, the 
the Solomon Islands, West Papua, that is a colony of Indonesia, Fiji, and New Caledonia, which is a colony of France. Um, part of my reasoning is or discourse also about um, Aboriginal peoples in Australia. There's also other groups of Pacific Islanders in Australia as well, like the South Sea Islanders who were forcibly taken to Australia. I know your work also engages the anti-apartheid movement in Australia and, and, and New Zealand. I'm more focused on Melanesia, um, but there are, there are significant overlaps. Um, demographically speaking, Melanesia is the largest sub-region of Oceania, the largest. PNG, Papua New Guinea, has some close to 9 million persons. Um, in contrast to the Maori of New Zealand, which is some 5 million. Polynesia as a total has some 2 million. Or Micronesia, which was a version that means many islands, has some 550,000 persons. So once again, Papua New Guinea just by itself has millions of more individuals than Polynesia or Micronesia. But yet when we see representations of the region, like Disney films, the, the darker populations are marginalized. And so we still have this imagination of Polynesia central, Melanesia marginal. But it's, it's really it's exactly the opposite. Now, phenotype isn't everything because what those categories uh, unfortunately did was mask the intense generations of kinship networks, uh, ethnic diversity and overlaps that anthropologists have traced and, and could do a far better job than I in describing, particularly around what's called Lapita culture, which uh, is taken all across the region as far south as New Zealand to Hawaii um, and to quote unquote French Tahiti. So, yes, yeah, so there's a lot there, you know, there, there's a lot there. Um, I guess my shortcut was looking specifically at uh, black movements that, you know, without question, describe themselves as being black. And sought black relationships globally. That was my route through this massive, massive space. Um, and I, I, I certainly invite other scholars to join in. I, I would hope you might look at uh, Melanesia as a space for the global dynamics of the anti-apartheid movement in, in the Pacific. I think it would be your work would be a tremendous help in that area. Certainly, absolutely. I'm eager to do that. Um, okay, so let's jump into our chapters. Um, you laid out you laid out a little bit of this just now. Um, but in the first chapter, you conceptualize a white Pacific and embedded in that is kind of like racializations, right? Um, so tell us about this white Pacific and then tell us about the black Pacific and how these and tell us about these two frameworks, the kind of like the history behind them um, and why you found them useful for structuring the book. Well, the White Pacific is 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 really a reference to uh, Gerald Horn's book, White Pacific, which <laughs> indeed, uh, which is an amazing amazing text that describes a phenomenon, a forced labor system known as blackbirding, in which uh, black communities from Melanesia were forcibly taken to Australia to work in sugar and cotton plantations, particularly after the U.S. Civil War. Uh, Southern Confederates moved the operations often to Oceania. Uh, these communities were also forced to be taken to Fiji. Um, Polynesian Islanders were also taken to the Andes as well. So the White Pacific explains this phenomenon. It, it took me a while to really understand, to, to really 
get a sense of what horn meant. Um, I think I have some sense now. It's the notion is that, you know, quite frankly, the Pacific's not white in the first place. Um, it, it's a space of black and brown indigenous communities. It becomes white. When there's an Australia, right, or, or, or New Zealand, uh, when indigenous persons in Australia were defined in Australia's constitution as being fauna, uh, you know, that's a white Pacific. Uh, the white Pacific speaks to European imperialism, capitalisms, colonialisms that ruptured the region um, in ways that are still with us. For example, as I mentioned, New Caledonia remains a French colony. Some of these colonial networks were a part of discussions around uh, the Berlin Conference of the 1880s that we speak of. Uh, Germany's first overseas colony is in New Guinea before the Berlin Conference. And so conversations that say, you know, where France says Britain, you can have the Suez Canal, it's, but we want to keep New Caledonia, right? Through these Atlantic, Pacific, Indian Ocean overlaps. Um, so for me, my Black Pacific is really a challenge to this white Pacific of imperialism. Like that's what's at stake for me. That's what, that's the point that for me, that's the importance of a Black Pacific. Um, how can my work, how can these notions of, how would the notion of Blackness used to fight against this white Pacific, as opposed to saying Black Pacific in contestation with Black Atlantic from an academic discourse. Now, clearly I'm asking us to do more as academics, but the point of the Black Pacific for me, like that's the secondary part is how does it challenge the Black Atlantic? The first part is how does a Black Pacific challenge a white Pacific? And by Black Pacific, I also mean when we create spaces for Blackness of Oceania, we're also creating a Black Pacific, which could take place outside of Oceania. So when oceanic activists uh, travel to the Americas, uh, you know, travel to Europe, travel to Africa, they're creating Black Pacifics. Um, so Black Pacific also has a political act around Blackness and not just a, a geographical region. That's what it means for me at this moment. It might mean something else if we have this interview the next time. No, I think that that comes across for sure, that the Black Pacific is like embedded in traditions of resistance to the violence of the White Pacific, but also um, that it's something in the making. There's something ontological about it, especially like when... Um, when people from the Black Pacific have encounters with people from other parts of the Black world. So let's move next to talk about Pacific Black power, um, which is a major kind of like theme of this book. Um, and how do you understand that Black power that's coming out of the Pacific in relation to other strains of Black power, um, such as ones that are coming out of the United States or the Caribbean or Black Europe or Southern Africa or anywhere else in the Black world. So in other words, what makes the politics of Black power in the Pacific distinct? Uh, <laughs> once again, it's a really, it's a really rich question. Um, well, I see Black power as a global anti-colonial project of Black self-determination. Um, I love that definition. I, I love that definition. That's my favorite definition. Yeah. 
why so could you could you elaborate well, because I think oftentimes that, uh, well, at least in the U.S. context, like the anti-colonial, I mean, maybe this is less so recently, but I think like um, the kind of like anti-colonial imperative of black power um, is understated um, mm. in in a lot of contexts. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. Um, and I, for me, I think it's important to also think about why the generations of black power chose to call the movements black power. Like, you know, chose chose that it those epistemologies, chose those symbols, um, mm-hmm. chose those labels. They meant specific things. Um, but usually they're centered on some form of black self-determination. And writing about black power in Bermuda was really, really helpful because the mainstream master narrative, you know, shouted black power didn't have an impact in the island. There was no black power movement. And so not being able to read a ton of literature about black power in Oceania didn't frustrate me to not look. You know, I was used to being, I was used to finding rich content in spaces that Babylon said there's no Zion there. Mm-hmm. Then you look and there it is. So um, at the same time, you know, to, I think to do the work really well, we have to try to find out what black power meant on its own terms. So in Oceania, uh, it's not an even movement. You know, for example, black power in, in Australia meant a lot of things. There was definitely a question around land. Land rights was a major component of black power, it's, it's a fight against genocide. Um, in places like Papua New Guinea, it's very much also about ecologies. Um, there's a there's an interesting case, and I, I talk a little bit about this in the book, uh, Bougainville, which is a part of Papua New Guinea, but is relatively close to the Solomons, the Kobe Solomon Islands. Uh, they led a major ecological war against these multinational mining companies. And one of the lead, main leaders of the Black Palm Movement in Papua New Guinea, his name is Leo Hennett, he came from Bougainville. And his conception of Black Power was this all this ecological fight is part of Black Power. Mm-hmm. Um, in Oceania, there's overlap between the Black Palm Movement and the anti-nuclear or the nuclear-free Pacific independent movement. Is there... So these questions of anti-nuclear uh, pushbacks against colonialism are really critical to black black power. Uh, black power in Oceania doesn't see a distinction between indigenous and black. It sees these as overlapping categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one quote, you may be familiar with this, one, one quote that came out of uh, black power in Australia was that activists read Bury my heart at wounded knee, just as much as they read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Polynesian Panthers, which emerged in New Zealand, as you know, um, is a part of the discourse. There are questions around indigeneity as well. Uh, Pan Africanism is critical. And in spaces like Wanawatu, in, in its fight against British colonialism, Black Power was at the forefront. Of the movement, this also causes us to change how we peer, how we 
how we bookend Black Power. Of These course, are late yeah. 1970, mm-hmm. 1980s conversations mm-hmm. that are also taking place. Um, when we think about, you know, what we think of the era of, of colonialism, um, you know, the 70s and 80s are really critical to understanding Black power and political politics in Oceania, which was different from, not so different from Bermuda, right, which remains a British colony, but maybe how I remember, you know, other islands uh, and spaces like the, like, like, like the U.S. as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the first site that you take us to in Oceania is West Papua. And some listeners might not be familiar with your 2018 Radical History Review article that's called Blinded by Bandung. Um, and that's a quote, so you should tell us who that's from. Um, so people might not be familiar with that or the struggle of the West Papuans against Indonesian imperialism. So tell us about the struggle, the staying power of that struggle, um, how West Papuans sought to internationalize it, how they were received globally, and what this struggle reveals about the Black Pacific. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's West Papua is so critical. Um, well, you know, as I was thinking about our, our interview, um, I don't think I stress this enough in the book. But the question of negritude runs through the entire book. Um, and negritude, not just as a feeling of negritude, but as, as, a, as a social, cultural, political movement of mm-hmm. the Black world. Negritude is very present. Um, this book could have just been about negritude um, in Oceania. Um, maybe that's more bread, breadfruit crumbs. But... <laughs> <laughs> West Papua was colonized by the Dutch. The Dutch, as you know, also colonized Indonesia. South Uh, Africa. South Africa, indeed. (laughs) Uh, I don't think, you know, we need more discussions about European imperialism in Oceania, how it connects, how it's, it's not... Just this Atlantic phenomenon, it's Indian and Pacific Ocean as well. They're, they're connected. Connected. Um, west Papua is on the west side of Papua New Guinea, which, as I mentioned, the west, the east side was colonized by Germany. So after World War II, uh, the east side is given to the British slash Australia. And Papua New Guinea achieves independence in the 1970s, formally administered by Australia. And that, that's, a, that's a big point for the book as well. Meanwhile, the West side, um, there's a ton of debate of, of what should happen in West Papua. Indonesia claimed that West Papua was a part of um, it before the Dutch, West Papuan said, no, this is crazy. We're, we're, we're from Melanesia. We're not the same. Uh, but the Bang Down Conference, which is this critical moment of Afro-Asian solidarity, Indonesia the first one you learn about. Exactly. The first one you learn about in grad school. Like, in grad school, it's, like, the, like, 
what is it? It's kind of like the pair, the paragon of like solidarity. It's the focal point. Yes, it's the cornerstone. Mm-hmm. It's it's the it's 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 it. <laughs> it's it's the most visible example, um, and for some, it's the last we hear about as mm-hmm. well. First and the last. Uh, it's in Malcolm speeches. Um, it's it's consistent, but. What activists from West Papua said, and they will probably still say this today, is that as they sought out, as they sought support from the Africa, Afro-Asian bloc for their own independence and self-determination, they didn't get the support they felt they should get because these countries were blinded by Bengal. Uh, they were blinded by Indonesia's claim to be an Afro-Asian, uh, quote-unquote, leader. Mm-hmm. As opposed to having embracing another form of colonialism, um, it's not. It's it's become much more usual, typical to see in this world of social media to see pictures and videos of West Papuans uh, leading massive demonstrations for independence while being attacked by um, Indonesian military. Um, but in, in my particular work, work. I looked at how West Papua nationalists in the early 1960s reached out to African-Americans through black newspapers like the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier. They described themselves as being Negroids at the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, they asked for help from the African cousins through the United Nations, to the NAACP. Uh, the Kennedy administration broke us a deal that gives West Papua to Indonesia, but they don't go silent. They start a guerrilla struggle uh, after an invasion from Indonesia. And eventually, and this is where negativity comes up, Leopold Senor allows uh, a provisional government of West Papua to establish a base and a, a working office in the car. And the chapter talks about how these activists used the car as a as a post to connect with the black world. Mm-hmm. Um, so while Senor is not, you know, typically seen as being the most quote unquote radical mm-hmm. one of the negative, he actively gave support um, to West Papua, um, and that's that struggle is still st- still still going on. But this also points to what's at stake. Right, because mm-hmm. one of my questions was, if we look at the black world from the perspective of the Pacific, does it change or challenge challenge some of our notions of black internationalism? And it does raise questions about Bangdong. It doesn't. I don't think it destroys the the the, necess, the necessity and significance of Afro Asian solidarity, but it does raise questions about Bangdong. Yeah, it also raises questions about. Um, about kind of the African political leadership um, during that kind of like after, after or like post-decolonization or after colonialism. So African leaders that came to power and then, um, yeah. And so just like the politics of post-colonial Africa also come into question. Um, Yeah, you're right. And I I would say even in, 
at, at, you know, on the floor of the United Nations, right? It raises right. several questions. Um, okay, let's go to the next chapter. When did mm. you first encounter Aboriginal activist Oduguru Nunukau? And what does examining a figure like her tell us about gender, about anti-colonialism and black women's internationalism? Wow. Uh, yeah, Nunukau and for, and tell, us how we, tell us how we meet her <laughs> in the book. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Because that's um, an interesting connection. Uh, okay, sure. Um, and a risky connection, right? But like I said, you know, I want to do risky work. <laughs> um, I'm glad you appreciated that 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 moment because I haven't had the opportunity to talk a lot with, with readers about it. But we'll, okay, so you know, um, I was interested in Australia's Black Panther Party, and I had set my scope on Dennis Walker, who was a co-founder of the Black Panther Party in Australia in 1971, or late 1970. And he's, a, he's, a, he's an amazing character. You know, I think he had, he got, I think he kind of had that H. Rat Brown kind of black political performance performance like he had he harnessed that does that make any sense like do you that's how i kind of see him as, okay <laughs> like he could he could electrify a crowd mm-hmm. like he yeah. might stand on a police car you know dressed in an all black suit with a motorcycle helmet on and his crew the gary foley's you know the paul coles a paul Coe was probably a little more you know chill but i i I just was captivated by 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 dennis his 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 ability to be performative this doesn't take away from his set of politics i just think he had he had a certain um i I just wondered where he got that sense of charisma and and flair from and then you know i i find out that his mother calf walker is this long-standing activist uh, a national secretary of the Federal Council for Aboriginal and uh, Australian Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. The, you know, of course, we know the Torres Strait Islanders occupied in the north of Australia and culturally are, are closer to Papua New Guinea. And she was a poet. Uh, she worked with black women like Faith Bandler, who was also a descendant of her family was blackbirded, her father. So she was a South Sea Islander. And the major claim to fame was, as, as you know, this referendum to have Aboriginal persons counted in the census in Australia, which in the late 1960s was actually a big deal. Uh, Nunukau herself had this ability to move the crowd. You know, she had the ability to talk with anyone. She, her first poem was, uh, you know, my son, son of mine, which was a poem to her, to Dennis, when he came home and asked her, he asked a question about, you know, his complexion. I think he had been received some negative comments from schoolmates about his complexion. So I found it to be an even more phenomenal person to explore. Um, she was nationally known. 
you know, she was she would do things like, for example, I believe you may you may have a better sense of the story. Uh, she was in a state where it was illegal for uh, whites and Aborigines to drink alcohol together. And she met with a minister and she said, you know, in some states you could be arrested. We could both be arrested for this. Um, that was her sense of, you know, ability to just harness the moment um, in our political activism. So, yeah, we meet her. The reader meets her. Um, she was actually... Australia sends a delegation to Festec, which is the Festival of African Arts, the second festival of African arts and culture in Nigeria, 1977. She is on that stern committee. Uh, on her way back from a pre-Festec meeting, her plane is hijacked uh, in Dubai by a group of Palestinian Fedayeen or guerrilla leader. She's awoken with a rifle in front of her in her face. And she's asked, is she, is she Indian? And she says, no, I'm Australian Aborigine. I know your struggle, but it's not going to work. You should join Festech. And I was just blown by that. Like, you know, at gunpoint, she actually builds community um, with these hijackers slash freedom fighters. She writes an amazing poem um, called To Yousef, My Son, which was about the leader of this group. And she described how he should, he started as a doctor. So she comes, she has, you know, this ordeal goes for a few days, at least, well, over a day. But she was able to hold space. Um, she's already a veteran organizer. Uh, you know, her space around, you know, gendered. She saw Yousef as her own son. Um, she didn't denounce him. She said he should be home holding a woman instead of holding a rifle. She described his complexion as being attractive and she never denounces, she never denounces um, this group. Um, she identified herself with Palestine, with Palestine. That's also not a new entity. Um, she was once a part of the Communist Party. So she had a really clear sense of, of, of politics um, and was globally traveled and didn't break a sweat. She wrote two poems on the, the sick bags of the plane. And, you know, she was asked later, this is an interesting conversation for the moment we're in, to denounce hijackers and she just she just never did. Um, she found herself working the World Council of Churches meetings. For example, she studied, she traveled to London and stayed around. She met folks like Oliver Tembo. Uh, this is 1969. She talked about mm -hmm. black power emergence in London and how she had this she had this vision that Australia would join the United States to try to destroy black people. And black people would join up with China and have this massive race war if the white world didn't get itself together. Um, so in, in a nutshell, we don't get this dramatic leader of Australia's Black Panther Party without Nunakel. Mm -hmm. she, she's the root. Yeah. I mean, once I read that part in the chapter, I was hooked. I was just in. I couldn't put the book down. Um, but let's move next to Papua New Guinea. 
Um, and in Papua New Guinea, we learn about the New Guinea, New Guinea Black Power Group, mm-hmm. um, the students there at the University of Papua New Guinea, and their newspaper called Niliadat. Um, so from where did, from where locally and internationally did these students draw Black Power inspiration? Um, what were some of their preoccupations um, as far as that was concerned? And how should we understand in them in the context of global Black Power student uprising during this time? Of course, I'm thinking about mm. South Africa, but I'm also thinking about, you know, the United States, protests at Howard, San Francisco State, et cetera. How would you... Um, want us to understand that. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> negative is really important in this space, and this whole book could have been about Papua New Guinea. Um, yeah. So, one of Black Power's, I guess, births in PNG was the University of Papua New Guinea, a UPNG, which was founded in 1966 on the road to PNG being independent or the decolonial road. And just like in Africa, the university is created to help create a new class of civil servants to run the administration through a neo-colonial lens. They had two colleges, one to produce political leaders, the other to produce you know, the civil servants, the writers and, and, and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> But it didn't happen that way. Um, within a few years, detractors were calling UPNG a Mama factory in reference to Kenya's Land and Freedom Army, Mama, because this a radical group of students and professors began to emerge. Um, Leo Hannett, who forms one of the founders of the New Guinea Black Power Group, says it was formed during a late night anti-colonial hate session sometime in 1970. <laughs> and we know what that must sound like, right? You know, I can just imagine what that sounded like. Um, the group were a ton of artists, visual artists, poets, novelists, playwrights, sculptors, who literally, uh, some went to seminary school, some like Hannett, came from Bougainville, Uh, many of them had a clear sense of their ancestral traditions because numbers came from communities that had not been Christianized or didn't even know they were colonized. So Mm -hmm. pardon the simplicity, but some of these members came straight from the village to the campus. And they had a clear sense that they were not the cannibals or or Stone Age peoples that anthropologists like Margaret Mead, who makes a career off of the so-called barbaric peoples of Papua New Guinea, it didn't make sense to them. You know, they knew they had their own traditions, spiritual traditions. Uh, they were heavily influenced by scholars like Uli Bear, uh, Tabernil Ying, uh, Ali Missouri, who came from Makarere University. There was a, lo- a ton of African-based professors, Black Studies professors who found themselves at UPNG, sometimes teaching on a temporary basis, sometimes more more structured. Uli Bear, mm-hmm. for example, worked with Willis Nyinka on his Black Orpheus project. He brought a ton of African literature, 
uh, books, contacts. And this group actually created a black arts movement, or I would say a Melanesian arts movement at UPNG that attracted artists, writers, activists from across the region. Uh, in 1975, Nunuka herself is the keynote speaker at the first Black Writers Conference of PNG, and she asked, or she said she hoped that a year from now, Black writers could meet to have a Black Pacific Festival of the Arts annually at UPNG. It was this kind of space. Um, and it, it's critical because, you know, this is a country that is demographically black that's about to be independent what that meant for oceania is huge when you think mm. about mm-hmm. australia and how aborigines saw their political possibilities um it certainly wasn't to have a black state there's these negotiations with white power that png didn't actually have to have on the same level um this was going to be a black state and these black students lean into that and they produced a ton of transformative work. Uh, they attacked or they were against Australian colonialism. They denounced Indonesian imperialism in West Papua. Uh, they pushed back against uh, apartheid in South Africa. Uh, they had demonstrations against representatives from South Africa. There was one case where they literally chased um, uh, one you know, leading member of South Africa to the airport. Um, they chased them off campus. They denounced them. Um, there's a ton of, you know, interesting black power political activity. And they described themselves as a Fanon inspired African negritude form of black power. Um, sort of tapping into the reading stuff, the Carmichael's black power, the reading Nkrumah, King. Um, and I think for me, PNG is probably the most important space understanding um, what a Black Pacific means. They really retransformed what Melanesia meant. Uh, they transformed Melanesia from being a negative uh, codifier of barbarism into a powerful vision of, of, of Black internationalism. Um, they did that. The choice to go to Festec as well as a state-sponsored um, you know, mission was also defining themselves as a black state. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's much more I could have wrote about Papua New Guinea. There's, there's much more. Oh, this bright fruit comes. Well, you did. You wrote another chapter um, on it. So we see like we see this um, we see this kind of like student movement, intellectual movement happening in, in chapter four, and then in chapter five. Um, you make the argument that Papua New Guinea becomes this kind of crucial node. Um, but, and then we see it kind of like amplified through art and culture. So let me just ask you about that. What is the significance of art? Um, and I don't know, I guess like artistic production to um, the way that Papua New Guinea is able to be elevated. Cause the way that you're talking about Papua New Guinea now, I kind of think of like, okay, is this the black star? Is this like Ghana? like of like you know but in the 19 but in the 1970s but is this like how people saw ghana in the 1950s is that a is that a comparison that you would make and then how is i guess like how is art factoring into um the consolidation of melanesian identity um in papua new guinea 
as it as it's becoming this kind of like central node of the Black Pacific. Yeah, art is art is really really huge. Um, this is a the argument, at least that the New Guinea Black Power Group is making, is that we have to challenge mental colonialism mm-hmm. because we're about to be independent. But if we don't if we don't redefine our culture as something we should be proud of, like that should be our work. Mm-hmm. Like we've already we've already won this war. We're, oh, we're going to be an independent country. So what do we do? You know, what's the lessons of Africa? How do we avoid some of those pitfalls? Um, this is being driven by students and faculty members from across the region and, and the global south. For example, Paulo Freire um, is repeatedly in Oceania. Uh, UPNG gives a home for countries like Wanawatu, which is at the time is New Hebrides and colonized by the French and the British. A ton of students from UPNG study. I mean, a ton of students from Wanawatu study UPNG. These students are making connections with other Pacific Islanders and they're building political relationships. Uh, the French, for example, were really concerned that students at UPNG were learning from leftist professors. Uh, and they were they a ton of anxiety around what this might mean for the form, for the remaining colonies. Uh, UPNG was, ex- or the government was experimenting with Tanzania's form of socialism as well, uh, different systems of village development. Um, in other words, they were trying not to go in the colonial route. Like there's this interesting moment when Papua New Guinea goes independent, they're trying to be, they're trying to go a different road. And the university actively hosted these annual conferences called these Wagani seminars on different elements of Melanesia. So economics, politics, environment, land, laws, uh, the ecologies, uh, family, culture. And scholars are coming from all across Oceania and actively grappling with what it means to be Melanesia. And then they're going back to the spaces. Uh, meanwhile, and I, you know, I, I really want to just press this point again. If you look at Time magazines or Life magazine, in the same moment, Papua New Guinea is being defined as a stern edge land before time. Mm-hmm. But Oceania is not seeing PNG as this. It's seeing PNG mm-hmm. as the future. Mm-hmm. So even when we think about Pacific studies, uh, Pacific studies owes a lot to this massive emergence of, of Black political culture and art, publishing of, 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 of journals that's coming from PNG a lot. And the, and the early icons of, of um, Pacific studies, I have an understanding of that. Ipili Hofa, for example, he lived and studied uh, UPNG as well as Trinidad. Um, so I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done. And once again, for PNG to say, we're going to send an official delegation to FASTAC, like we're going to identify ourselves as being Black, is radically different than what Australia does. Australia says, oh, we have some Negroes, let's send some Aborigines. But this doesn't mean Australia is Black and Indigenous. Mm-hmm. PNG is saying we're Black and Indigenous and you can't, you can't forget us. We're on the world stage. And while I'm not so big on modernity, I think it offered a vision of Black modernity as a future Blackness. This is also a reason why <laughs> Papa Nagini's flag ends up on Bob Marley's album cover on survival as the only mm-hmm. African country. Um, there's this visibility 
that PNG is occupying as a black state in Oceania that we've probably forgot for a ton of reasons. Which is how the book opens with Robert Nesta Marley yes. <laughs> and the PNG flag on survival. Yeah. Um, okay, let's stick with that. Let's stick with um, Fest Tech. Yeah. Um, 1977 in Lagos. Um, so you always have to have a conference in your books. <laughs> <laughs> last last time it was six pack. This time it's best tech. Um, but <laughs> but it was it was actually great to read about Fest Tech because I, in my readings um, outside of Jonathan Fenderson's book, um, I think it it needs to be engaged more um, by scholars. So, um, yeah, so like tell us about this um, festival um, and kind of what purpose it served for um, mm. activists from Oceania. What did they bring to that conference and share with others? And what did they carry back with them from the conference? Um, yeah, so, <clears throat> yeah, as, as you know, <laughs> one of my uh, conference um Excuse me. I guess methods is we can't always understand a major national conference <laughs> or international conference by the days of the actual event. Um, for example, Bermuda's Black Power Conference '69 is massive. It's it's surveilled by the British and Canadian governments. It required a ton of organizing. It takes months before. Uh, the Congress of African Peoples initially starts as a Black Power Conference in Barbados. They're sabotage, so we're talking over a year of organizing. Six Pack, um, which I love to talk about, as you know, um, <laughs> you know, emerges from this Bermuda Conference in '69 and takes years of organizing. Um, so when we don't when we don't examine the the, the buildup to the conference, we miss the political potential. We miss some of the mishaps. Uh, we miss some of the networks that are being created if we're just going to look at conference speeches that took place mm -hmm. the day of or the day of, which is why, and I, I totally disagree, many times the argument that's left on the table is this conference didn't do anything. Because, you know, Bobby Down wasn't overthrown in the, in the five days of the conference, so the conference didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. That ignores, that could ignore years of political organizing. And from the perspective of Oceania, there are two main delegations that are sent, as I mentioned before. Um, but I think I want to just, you know, talk about Nora Vagi Brash. She was, uh, she is critical playwright of PNG, the National Theater Company, which comes out of Black Power. Um, she travels to she travels to um to to uh Festec and I, I had the opportunity to to interview her. Um mm -hmm. one of her most critical works was a satirical play called Which Bay Big Man, which was a critique of PNG's transition from colonialism to independence. It made fun of corrupt politicians, uh, you know, male leaders who, you know, exploited other communities. Um, she worked with folks from the, from the Black Power, um, New Guinea Black Power group. And she also worked with a ton of other oceanic icons like Albert Wendt, uh, Chinua Achebe, for example, 
Marvin Kakum from the Cook Islands, which is a huge figure in in in, in the political cultural world of of Oceania. She found her time in Nigeria to be a highlight. Um, uh, she spent a lot of time in Festac Village. Um, one of the moments that I was particularly excited by was she met Fela, uh, mm-hmm. Fela Kuti, you know, partner of Afrobeat. Fela also was an encounter for me at, at Howard. Um, she had created a poem called Underground Scuffle for audience that included Stevie Wonder. Um, during the poem, she denounced the National Front protest in Islington, Britain. Um, so she had a sense of, of you know, white supremacy's global dynamics. She called for mm-hmm. the British sent back to England. Mm-hmm. Uh, one quote was, leave the Indians to powwow, send the Paikas packing from Oratoria, uh, return the convicts from Australia, let the Abos dance in Corroboree, stop apartheid, dismiss the whites from Azania. That was um, my favorite part. You might that was it. That. You did. You know, shout out. Uh, <laughs> let Mother England <laughs> sink under the weight of an offspring of the empire repatriated. Um, this prompted Stevie Wonder to send the call for her the next day. They talked about PNG. Uh, this gives us another lane. You know, for me, yes, you're right, right? This is the breadfruit crumb. I would love <laughs> to know what Stevie thought of this encounter. Uh, she met with Miriam Makiba. She spent time at, at you know, at, at Fela Shrine. Um, you know, they discussed, she's discussed with activists from South Africa, Soweto, uh, Biko. Um, and on the flight back, uh, she ends up in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesmyn the Derg was really emerging. So she had that experience as well. So, you know, if we just think about Festac mm-hmm. and also from the perspective of an Atlantic discourse, we miss these other transformative moments. She and mm-hmm. other activists felt that when they returned to Papua New Guinea, they were invigorated to actually see themselves as part of a broader political black world mm-hmm. and that they weren't alone um, mm-hmm. in, these, in these struggles. Yeah, I think my other favorite thing about her is the way that she mm-hmm. talks about the Coca-Cola Corporation. And um, she's really like highlighting corporate imperialism as being an issue, well, specifically in South Africa and in Soweto. So I thought that was dope. Yeah, exactly. She, if I may, um, you know, she remembered a moment when one of her friends from Soweto gave a kid who was selling Coca-Cola, she gave him a lecture about being a slave to an American consumer company. Mm-hmm. And the friend brought the kid's last drink. He had been trying to sell this for like three hours. And she told him to go home and sleep. She didn't drink the Coca-Cola. And she thought her mission was done. Uh, Brass turns around and sees the kid just ran around the corner and brought a whole crate more of drinks. <laughs> and ironically, there was an issue of water. And Fela talks about Fast Tech, um, an unknown soldier. Um, it's, it's really a critique where he says what to do in Nigeria to do in South Africa. I think that that, that song is slept on. Um, and his analysis is slept on. But there was a water issue and ironically you know, these visitors to Festec had to drink Starberry and Coca-Cola. And she said she was plagued by this mm-hmm. you know, incident and saw this kid as being caught up in the rat race of survival. 
also owed to Marley in some way. But she took mm. these lessons back with her. Um, so, you know, from her perspective and from others like her, what happened in Nigeria didn't stay in Nigeria. It also, you know, was a lesson for the pitfalls of natural consciousness in PNG. That's right, phenomenal. Right. right. Well, you don't give us one conference. You actually give us, well, you give us a number of conferences, but let's go to the next conference that you give us, which is oh, wow. the one that takes place in Fiji in 1975, mm. the Pacific Women's Conference. Um, why was this conference important? Um, and how did the women who organized it um, understand anti-colonialism, ecological justice, and Black power as a type of feminist praxis? Uh, yeah, I'm laughing at myself because there's actually three conferences <laughs> <laughs> in that year in Fiji. Well, One day you will theorize the significance of conferencing to Black no. Power struggle, global anti-colonial Black Power struggle. Well, see, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to over overemphasize the conference, but you know, if, if we look at, if we just take a, a more broad eye bird's eye view, it's really not about the conference. It's really not about the conference. The conferences reflect or they demonstrate imperialism. They demonstrate who can travel and who can't. Who can't get a visa, who can't. Um, Mm -hmm. The difficulty for organizers to get to Fiji. Fiji is one of the reasons why Fiji is important is that it's actually easier to get to than some of the other islands. Um, even when I traveled to Wanawatu, um, you know, some years ago, it was really difficult to get to some of the outer islands. It wasn't, it wasn't easy at all. So if you, if you, you know, take a few decades back step to the 70s, 60s, um, travel itself was a challenge. So I think, I think um, sometimes I may be, I don't want to overstate it, but when we think of like a fast tech or more like a six pack, it's largely remembered by African-American activists who travel and have a privilege to be able to travel. But Amri Baraka, um, who, you know, has the best lyrics on the mic, has a lot to say about um, six pack as a space where nothing got done. Rahaki Mighty Booty, you know, moved around like a ghost. Um, but once again, from the perspective of Black Pacific, there's others. There were other conferences too that aren't as big or visible, but they matter. So back to Fiji. Um, <clears throat> Fiji was transformative in terms of uh, anti-colonialism, uh, black power, feminist practice. The Young Women's Christian Association in the 1960s becomes a really radical space when its first Fijian director Amelia Rukutavuna takes over at the home. Rukutavuna travels across the world through the World Council of Churches. Um, she works with black women from across the United States. She's in Africa, she's in Europe. She's building these international networks and she's trying to build a radical space of political education for young indigenous women in Fiji. Uh, two of her protégés, Vanessa Griffin and Claire Slater, become these amazing icons of, of, of radical thought and, and praxis in the region. They organize a Pacific Women's Conference. 
which was extremely critical. It, it brought Pacific women, they were arguing for the first time from across so-called Polynesian, Melanesia, Australia, um, New Zealand, Micronesia, to talk about common issues. Uh, those issues that came up were colonialism is a real phenomenon, that nuclear testing is having a really negative impact on all these indigenous communities, whether or not they were described as being from Melanesia or Micronesia. Uh, they denounced imperialism and colonialism in New Caledonia. Remember like Dewey Gorday, uh, with central figures. He also was a political prisoner um, incarcerated by France for anti-colonial activism. Uh, this all takes place around the University of the South Pacific, which is a satellite institution. Uh, Fiji's campus is based upon culture and arts. These women have a critical role in, in developing arts, often looking at the lens of, UP, of, of UPNG as well. Uh, they organized, they helped organize the Nuclear Free Pacific Conference in Fiji that also took place in 1975. And by the end of that conference, uh, indigenous folks, indigenous women like Ruka Tavuna had pushed the Nuclear Free Pacific Conference to be the Nuclear Free and Independent Pacific Conference. Mm -hmm. The argument was that uh, nuclear testing was an issue in the region because they were colonized peoples. Mm -hmm. And to stop nuclear testing, it wasn't just a question of health, it's a question of politics. To stop nuclear testing, the region had to be independent because France is not dropping nuclear bombs or test nuclear bombs in Paris or the waters of, of, of Paris. It's doing so in its colonies like Tahiti. The U.S. dropped some, you know, hundreds of bombs in Micronesia after World War II. Um, you know, Britain was also conducting nuclear testing in Australia. So the argument was for us to be healthy, we had to also be independent. Um, along the road, uh, you know, these women also became a hub for other political movements. They, for example, launched a really powerful newsletter known as Provide. It's based upon a Tongan War um, mm -hmm. club that for me as a, as a scholar in reading the pages of Provide, I was able to see these liberation struggles from across the region in one space. They would get information, up-to-date information about these liberation movements from these other countries and then send out these newsletters um, as like a one united front about all these various struggles. Um, and they were essential for me in trying to figure out this massive world of, 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 of Black internationalism uh, that will be Vanessa and Claire. And they're still active in today's nuclear, nuclear struggles. It's not over. It's still, mm -hmm. these are still major issues. Mm -hmm. And many of these struggles are actually still active, correct? Indeed, indeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so in the next two chapters, we, uh, learn about the liberation struggle uh, from colonialism in Kanakee. Um, tell us about this struggle, the militancy of its anti-colonialists, mm. the militancy of its youth who appear on the cover page of a book, mm. um, and the ways that they supported, they won the support <laughs> of African nations, uh, specifically Libya. Um, so ultimately, what did the Kanak struggle symbolize for the Black world in the Pacific and beyond? Well, you know, Amanda, I would admit, um, when I finished this book, 
I really took a step back and I really had to think about, you know, when I wrote Black Power in Bermuda, I couldn't have wrote this book. Mm-hmm. Because going back to the question you asked earlier, the research and writing process called for a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of transnational histories to understand, to grapple with. Um, and, you know, while I was trying to write about the 20th century, this is not a 20th century story, to be honest. Uh, the Kanak struggle is probably the most significant in Oceania. Um, the island itself is is very much Melanesian, colonized by the French and described as New Caledonia in reference to Scotland as New Hebrides. Mm-hmm. The French quickly discovered there was nickel. New Caledonia becomes one of the world's largest producers of nickel, um, particularly when the Panama Canal is, is built. They took the Kanak land, just like what Australia did in establishing the penal colony. Uh, the French sent prisoners there and, you know, gave them land. They also sent, uh, you know, uh, you know, colonial dissidents from Algeria and Morocco mm-hmm. were also sent to New Caledonia. In 1878, there's a massive protest by a chief named Atai who fights against the French. And in this uprising, he kills a French general. Mm. And I think you know how this works. Um, This became a really visible symbolic strike against imperialism that Mm -hmm. rallied the entire region. Um, It's just like, you know, when I saw Ghana, victory, I went off, you know, I went to class at my Ghana flag, trying to represent. Um, so for the Kanak struggle, it meant so much to Oceania, particularly mm-hmm. other islands like Wanawatu, um, who were trying to do what the Kanak did. They got a general. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, France controlled New Caledonia with a ton of outright physical violence. Uh, which only resulted in more liberation movements. Group for 1878, for example, is a group founded by, I mentioned Dewey Gorday in the 1970s. These are black power groups. They understood their own place in history. They chose to name themselves after freedom fighters from the 19th century. They knew what the fight was against. Mm-hmm. Several kind of found themselves like, you know, colonized people do in the metropoles of the colonizers. They end up in Paris, they end up in France. Who else is in France? Other writers and scholars and activists from the black world. Uh, so Presence African and Sheikh Antajab is engaging these activists. Uh, the reader Fanon, the work of this, you know, black students from Wanawatu, but also from Martinique and in Guadeloupe, uh, the study negritude. Um, they're trying to use the lessons of Fanon and Negritude and in their own anti-colonial movements. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is exactly what they do. They return to, to New Caledonia in the late 60s, 70s, and through the lens of black power and anti-colonialism, they fight these major wars against the French. Inevitably, 
the French use tactics that, you know, Quantile Pro like, but this also speaks to how Quantile Pro is just a fragment of um, these global assaults on black communities. Um, in the 1980s, there's a ton of us, there's assassinations, uh, political incarcerations that really set back the movement for decades. Uh, yes, the, the front cover of the book is a picture by a photographer named Bruce Kanu, who was in New Caledonia. It's, it's, it's an image of a young girl holding a rifle. Uh, that community was about to be raided by the French within days, and several of the leaders were killed. Mm. Um, Dewey Gorday is still, still around. Uh, France does not call New Caledonia a colony. The French prefer nice little terms like departments. But one of the <laughs> one of the concerns were yeah departments. I mean yeah. you know colonial departments. Exactly. <laughs> some countries want to say overseas territories. Some say departments. Some say protectorates. Some say protectorates. Yes. Um. Yeah. So you know one of the one of the one of the concerns, and this this kind of you know blew me, was that the French were concerned that that there was a contagion, a cannot contagion, that was also influencing anti-colonial movements in the Caribbean, in Martinique, and Guadeloupe. And their concern was if we let New Caledonia go, then we're gonna lose Tahiti. And that's where we the nuclear testing. And then we might use Martinique, and then we might use Guadeloupe. We have to shut this down. And New Caledonia still is a world leading producer of nickel, uh, but the question of independence is is a, is a giant question mark. In the 80s, Libya slash Gaddafi, I like to do risky work. Gaddafi hosted a massive uh, Pacific uh, free conference, which was attended by a ton of leaders from Oceania, Asia, and the Caribbean. Uh, he called for one united front against imperialism, stretching from Grenada Mm -hmm. all the way to New Caledonia. He argued that, uh, you know, imperialism saw these islands as being small, dark, um, and insignificant, mm -hmm. but they would need, you know, but they needed to unify to raise this massive fight against imperialism. Uh, so that's that's a big part of the uh, a big a critical chapter of the book as well that I think you know it's another breadfruit crumb. You need to look more significantly at Gaddafi, international politics, of the Black world in the nineteen eighties, the Black Pacific Absolutely. also why it's important. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. So um, it seems that you also <laughs> another pattern is that you tend to end these books with Wanawatu. <laughs> I think Paulo's diaspora. I think one of the last chapters was on Wanawatu, uh, but I don't know if that's correct. But I think it might be, or close to the end. Um, and this book, last chapter, yeah, this book, the last chapter is in Wanawatu. So um, Wanawatu gains independence in 1980, right? And it seems mm -hmm. to accelerate further um, Black power in the Pacific with the heads of this new nation using their diplomatic authority and their legitimacy to amplify things like the Canic struggle, anti-imperialism broadly, and anti-apartheid politics on international stages. Um, 
Tell us more about Wanawatu's Black Power foreign policy, how mm-hmm. it compared to or extended the radicalism that came out of 1970s Papua New Guinea that we just discussed earlier, um, and how you ultimately appraise the significance of Wanawatu's decision to establish a diplomatic outpost in Harlem, USA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Amanda, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, Wanawatu is... You you raised the you raised the the question earlier about is PNG Ghana? Uh for me I would say Wanawatu is Ghana slash Cuba. Uh Paulu literally helps them to go independent. They avert an international crisis uh established by France. France was attempting to stage an uprising in one area, a minimal rich area of the country. Sounds familiar, right? This could be Katanga. Uh, one of our two leaders like Barack Sope and Walter Linney, Hilda Linney, they knew of this attempt. So they asked Papua New Guinea's regiment, army to be present under the auspices of a national independence ceremonies. So, PNG's military actually shuts down this French-inspired uprising, which is a for me a dramatic case of of Melanesian solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Want to openly, you know, use references to as as the Nkrumah in Ghana, our independence is meaningless if the rest of Oceania is not free. Mm-hmm. Uh, they became a major advocate of West Papua, New Caledonia. Uh, they allow these movements to establish bases there. I met a number of these leaders while I was there. Um, and they showed up on the world stage with a Black internationalist foreign policy that was anti-apartheid, that was based upon environmental justice. They became a leading you know, state around uh, you know, anti-nuclear testing. They helped establish a nuclear-free treaty of the Pacific peoples. And in, in the 1980s, a really doing some amazing, um, the scope is amazing in terms of the sense of Black internationalism. They sought the services of Robert Van Lira, who we know as, you know, the director and the the producer of Aluta Continua, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our our favorite film on Southern African liberation struggles. (laughs) He, Suriname-born, New York-based lawyer, um, he became a critical voice for Wanawatu as their ambassador at the UN. Um, he helped them establish a mission in Harlem. They became the first state to do so. They intentionally sought to be in Harlem as well because they wanted to connect with you know, the Black world. They saw Harlem as a site of, of, of Black internationalism. Um, and what this also means is that because Wanawatu and the party, well, the Wanawaku party, what's the name of the party, had such this lens around liberation, the archive is, is an archive of Black liberation and global South freedom struggles. Mm-hmm. I, I, w- I would be, I would love to know, you know, what kind of materials you could find on the anti-apartheid movement um, in Wanawatu's national archives. Um, when we talk about archives as colonial projects, um, much that is true, 
Wonderwatu has built a revolutionary archive that I found was totally fruitful. Totally fruitful. Mm. Um, also, when the French, yes, <laughs> when the French, and I'll end with this, when the French were kicked out, they accidentally left behind some 70 boxes of surveillance documents. Oh, okay. That, that the archive was able to snatch and made available. Um, so it's it's an amazing, amazing resource and a wonderful, a wonderful country. Uh, one of my most favorite places to 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 be in. Vibes. One of two is vibes. And cyclones and rising sea levels as well. That's the other challenge dynamic. And solar power. It's, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting space. Okay, well, I have one more question for you before we uh, before we say goodbye. Um, the last time you were here, you promised us a reggae book that you've referenced numerous Ooh. times throughout this interview. So how's that going? What specifically are you working on in that reggae book right now? Um, are we going to get it by 2024? We, we see you back in two years to talk about the reggae book. Um, and what else are you working on? Wow, that that's a charge. So I'm, I'm on a I'm on a two year routine. Okay, you set you I mean, set the you set the schedule. So that 25. No, 20, <laughs> nah, you said the. <laughs> it's really 24. Wow, it's 20. Okay, it's December 24. Wow. Uh yes, yes, yes. Okay, it's that that's doable. Um, the book is going well. Um, vibes. Uh, the book for now the title is Born as a Sufferer. Um, something like dancehall and the insurgent global 1990s. Um, I'm writing about black internationalism through reggae dancehall sound systems in what I call the global 90s, which speaks to a black internationalism of an era of the 90s that for me stretches back <laughs> into the 80s and into the 2000s. Um, so the first chapter is on Walter Rodney and and reggae dancehall soundscapes and sound systems, how they memorialized Rodney. Uh, it's about martyrdom. Uh, another chapter that I'm, I'm wrapped up is about Grenada Revolution and Maurice Bishop and uh, how music, you know, documented that struggle. And uh, right now I'm writing about Dennis Brown mm-hmm. um, and his, the political significance of his music. But by the end of it, we'll be talking about Bounty Killer uh, Lila Aiki and, and, and I think um, you know Coffee will probably might make an appearance but that's really she's really the next book she's really the next book we love this book coffee is really, we can't wait for the coffee book <laughs> oh, that's that's four years that's not two years that's probably four years <laughs> but thanks for asking that I'm, but beyond the book uh, you know I'm, I'm building the sound system you know I'm really actively trying to do what my I'm taking my actual method that informed my writing and I'm actually just going to build I'm building the sound system you know, my house DJ, DJ more time, big up to more time, but I'm actively looking for more MCs and DJs, so that's an open invitation to you if you want to join. I know, I know your own work, looked at reggae, uh, anti-apartheid, um, and it's a, a brilliant project. So if you want to get on the on, on, the, on the tables, you know, spend some records, make some dub plates uh, for Azania, you're much, you're more than welcome to do so. Thank you. Yeah, there's some, there's some reggae in Oceania. Indeed. That needs to be discussed. Um, Indeed. Well, 
Dr. Keto Swan, I want to thank you so much for coming back to the show and sharing your wisdom with us, sharing your knowledge, your new book projects with us, and for speaking with us about Pacifica Black, Oceania, anti-colonialism, and the African world. Well, th- thanks for your time. Um, I'm, I'm sure I, I went on and on and on. My, my apologies, but I really enjoyed the deep and rich questions. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everyone.